Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. turned into a beautiful spring day. <laughs> so before our lunch we were talking about the way that obstacles arise in our yoga practice and the way that those obstacles, depending on our mode of perception, um, either become something that um, causes us to leave the path or those obstacles become something that we can then incorporate into the very path itself. In other words, what obstacles show up in your yoga practice are the actual uh, signposts or eventually become the, the asphalt for the next part of your, your practice. In a way, you could say it's, it's using the obstacles um, wisely um, that becomes the, the traction that you then have for the next part of your yoga practice. Otherwise, we start to think of the obstacles as something to get rid of, or we think of obstacles in a more personal sense as um, that which causes us failure in our yoga practice. And everybody knows that failure is the best success. I heard a wonderful comment recently that you can't find freedom until you lose your reputation. That until you've had your reputation tarnished, you can't find freedom. Because at some level, you're identifying with your reputation. How much time do we spend in making sure that we have a good reputation. Hiding our eccentricities, not speaking up when appropriate, so that we maintain a good reputation. I came across this poem that I like a lot, Antonio Mikado. Last night I had a dream Oh, wonderful error. I dreamt that here in my heart, golden bees were making honey and white combs out of my old forgotten failures. Last night I had a dream. Oh, wonderful error. I dreamt that here in my heart, golden bees were making honey and white comb out of my old forgotten failures. So how we meet our obstacles and how we meet what we call, usually from the ego's perspective, our failures, becomes the way we make honey or find sukha, sweetness, the opposite of dukkha. So let's go back to the 30th line of the first chapter. Patanjali says, as we talked about this morning, Sickness, apathy, doubt, carelessness, laziness, hedonism, delusion, lack of progress, inconstancy are all distractions which, by stirring up consciousness, act as barriers to stillness.
But he never ends there. As soon as he makes a statement like this, he defines it further and then always offers a practice for how to work with it. So he's saying, whenever these patterns that can give rise to dukkha, that can obviously give rise to or reinforce our patterns of discontent, um, one is going to experience distress, depression, or the inability to maintain steadiness of posture or breathing. One can subdue these distractions by working with any one of the following principles of practice. So, he's saying now, if these obstacles or distractions show up in your practice, so he's saying, first of all, that the obstacles are laziness, lack of progress, hedonism, etc. But he's saying that those obstacles are not the distractions. The distraction is the inability to maintain steadiness of breathing, presence, and so on. How do you work with a distraction to root it back to the obstacle? Um, here he's offering a very interesting way of working with resistance. Usually most of us, when we meet some resistance, we meet it with more resistance. Um, we interpret it, we analyze it, we judge ourselves, and we tend to meet psychological or physiological resistance with resistance. I mean, what sets you off the path is resisting the obstacle as part of the path. So he says the first way you approach the obstacle or the resistance is with maitri, friendliness. Friendliness. Oh, hello. Hello, anxiety. I, it's nice to see you again. I know you so well. We've known each other for so long. <laughs> or it hasn't been very long. <laughs> You're back. <laughs> Come on in. <laughs> yeah. There's a wonderful story about Shinru Suzuki Roshi where uh, in the morning he would wake up and he would do his calligraphy practice. And then... Um, the bell would ring, and his wife would ring a bell, and it would be time for breakfast. And when the first bell went off to wake up, he would always hear the bell and say, yes, and then get up and do his calligraphy practice. And then, being immersed in the calligraphy practice, the bell would go off, be time for breakfast. He'd hear the bell and say, yes, and he'd go to calligraphy. Always enjoyed that story. Because usually for us, the alarm goes off in the morning and the mind fills up with stories. And then we even have a snooze button. <laughs> Some alarm clocks, you can keep hitting the snooze button. Yeah. And uh, finally, we roll out of bed. We get immersed in one thing. And then it's time to do something else and we just don't want to leave it because it's enjoyable. And here's this example of something shows up and he says, yes. Could you imagine doing this? My favorite thing about sleeping with our son is that in the morning he wakes up and he's happy. <laughs> he's ready to go. He doesn't even think about coffee. <laughs> <laughs> he just wakes up, he's happy, and he'll say, you know, what are we doing today? Twenty minutes later, we're still rolling around on the covers trying to get up. And he's saying... What are you waiting for? Come on, let's get out. Yeah. So, likewise with resistance, something shows up and you meet it and you say, okay, this is what's here. Not turning away from it. If there's distress, you smell it and you taste it and you don't turn your eyes away from it. And you meet it with friendliness. Oh, hi. 
Remember what Freud said. Remember we were looking at Freud's theory of repression yesterday. And Freud said, the amount of energy you expel pushing content out of awareness is the same amount of energy that content will use to push itself back. So when it starts pushing back, it feels threatening for the ego. It feels threatening for the ego because the ego has organized itself as a defensive complex, Jung calls it, to keep certain things at bay. So when those things come back, which are usually the very things the personality needs, usually we push out the best stuff. And then we get what Freud was saying, he called it a kind of cultural amnesia. We forget that we're pushing this stuff out of, out of the way. The point, though, what Patanjali is saying here is that on its way back into awareness, we meet it with friendliness. Otherwise, we force it back into the shadow again, which then creates a heavier, darker, denser shadow. And there is always a shadow. There is always something that is outside awareness. And that's good. We don't want everything to be in awareness all the time. Thankfully, our autonomous nervous system can operate without us being aware of it. We don't have to be aware of every chemical in the stomach for it to work. There are certain things we don't need to have in awareness all the time. Although it's interesting, and we do this in yoga practice, is bring awareness to some minute movements that normally are outside awareness. But the thing about higher levels of processing is that we, through, through stilling the mind, we can become better aware of some of the things that we're normally pushing outside of awareness. And the first way we do that is we meet whatever has been previously expelled from awareness with friendliness. Otherwise, it comes back as an anxiety or a symptom that's just overwhelming. So a shadow is sort of the unconscious, but ever is in the unconscious. Yeah. And I actually, (coughs) I like to leave Jung's idea of the unconscious and think more of unconsciousness. Because sometimes using the language of the unconscious makes it feel like there is this place where everything (coughs) is, as if it really exists. So moment to moment, there's more a sense of unconsciousness rather than this, you know, yeah, yeah, some swamp that's (laughs) bubbling somewhere that stinks. I mean, the thing about swamps bubbling and stinking is usually that they're alive and very healthy. And originally in psychoanalysis, this was how schizophrenia was first understood, was that certain parts of the personality were pushed into the unconscious. And because they were so powerful and so important to integrate, because they were held in the unconscious, they would then develop their own autonomous ego. So it's almost like you have your central ego, but the contents you're using to push something outside of awareness develop a life of their own. We know this about compost, right? You put stuff in the compost, and it starts brewing. And so what you put back there then develops its own kind of personality. And there can be many of them. And then those personalities can sometimes usurp the central ego and can dominate the personality. So it's almost like you have different personalities in your own personality that you've interiorized through repression. It's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. The second way we meet what arises is through karuna, which is the goal of our yoga practice, which is compassion. 
the ability to be with suffering. Come to be with, pathos, suffer. Compassion is the ability to be with your suffering, to be with other suffering, which comes as a byproduct of friendliness. So anxiety arises, and you say, hello, friend. And then you offer to that anxiousness compassion. Usually it doesn't work that way. We feel anxiety, and we label it anxiety, and then we get anxious about having anxiety. And then we're anxious about our anxiety, and then you have anxiety. But we could catch it way earlier, because anxiety is not a thing, it's a physical sensation. And if you can stay present with physical sensation, even without the label, it's usually the first step in being present with your circumstances. And often people who have anxiety, one of the best ways of working with anxiety is to feel sensation without calling it anxiety. Because as soon as you put the label anxiety, this is my anxiety, then you get anxiety. But before that, there was no anxiety. There was just sensation. Anxiety is pretty physical. Has anybody felt anxiety? <laughs> <laughs> so is anxiety just like sort of your nervous system? Just <coughs> firing up, just sort of your breath is off and your nervous system gets thrown off because it's on the same line? Sure. And, you know, we can also think about a cultural anxiety. We don't want to get rid of anxiety so fast because anxiety gives you content to work with. If a certain part of a population in cultural terms is anxious, that's usually the beginning of revolution. If you try and suppress the anxiety, it only builds. And a perfect example are the, the riots in France a couple of years ago. You could see them building and building, and the government would keep denying, right? This is one of the ways we often meet anxiety, is through denial of feeling. And the government keeps saying, nothing is happening. We don't acknowledge these people. You know, they're illegal aliens. And remember, a psychiatrist is somebody who deals with aliens, alienation. So your own inner psychiatrist has to meet what's alien with friendliness and compassion. The government has to meet the um, what you skillfully call the pioneers with kindness and compassion. Otherwise, the government gets overthrown. Why does it get overthrown? Because it can't take another viewpoint. So it's a whole different way of doing your internal homeland security. Is that your homeland security is no longer based out of fear. It's preventative in the sense that it's offering dialogue as a way to create security. Because the best boundaries are boundaries based on dialogue, not tall fences. Anybody can shoot a rocket over a fence, especially your own instincts. Three, mudita, delight. Delight is like that feeling. Have you ever been sick in bed for a week or a year? Have you ever had a bad flu, for example, or a broken leg or recovering from surgery or something? And finally one day you get to go out of the house and just walk out to the curb. And there is such delight that you can actually walk so it's meeting what was an obstacle previously with friendliness, compassion, and a sense of delight. Why is friendliness and compassion? I mean, isn't delight? If I'm asking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> 
we keep hitting, hitting it over the head with um, the, the, the best we can find in our heart until it's not separate. So there's no separation. You can look at it as though you're alive. You're alive. You are so lucky to be alive. How precious is it that you're alive and that everybody in this room is alive and that you get to have the experience of being with these other people? Delight in that kind of gratefulness. Anybody who's been ill knows this feeling. You know this feeling of how lucky you are just to be doing this right now. Upekshanam, equanimity. This one, I think, is even harder. Treating whatever is there as equal to everything else. And we practice this today, I think, with listening to sound. Is it possible to really treat all sound as equal? Well, yes, it is possible. In other words, it's the giving up of preference, not taking in everything in terms of preference. I like this, I don't like that, I need more of this, I need less of that. And sukha, happiness, sweetness. Isn't it sweet that the depression is back? So at some level this seems intolerable because you're also applying this to other people. Somebody shows up as an obstacle to your life and you immediately practice friendliness, compassion, equanimity, and so on. So that there is no separation. You may disagree with the way they do their life, but there is total acceptance of how they are. You might live your whole life or act your whole life in such a way that is completely against every way they do their life, but they are still not separate. Like the dog barking during the Beethoven Symphony. Rolling them together so there's no separation. Let's open our photocopied books to the first page. Who wants to read? Ronit, will you read? This is an excerpt from uh, the great poet and teacher, Gary Snyder, <coughs> who uh, you should always give the first and last word to. Atomic Dawn. The day I first claimed Mount St. Helens was August 13, 1945. Spirit Lake was far from the cities of the valley, and news came slow. Through the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, August 6, and the second dropped on Nagasaki, August 9. Photographs didn't appear in the Portland, Oregonian until August 12. Those papers must have been driven into Spirit Lake on the 13th. Early in the morning of the 14th, I walked over to the lodge to check the bulletin board. There were whole pages of the paper pinned up, photos of a blasted city from the air, the estimate of 150,000 dead in Hiroshima alone, the American scientists quoted saying, nothing will grow there again for 70 years. The morning sun on my shoulders, the fear forest smell and the big tree shadows, fed in the thin moccasins, filling the ground, and my heart still one with the snow peak mountain at my back. Horrified, Blaming scientists and politicians 
and the government of the world, I swore a vow to myself, something like, by the purity and beauty and permanence of Mount St. Helens, I will fight against this cruel destructive power and those who would seek to use it for all my life. Where is the passivity? There's no passivity. Out of his experience of being one with this mountain, he feels the violence of some of our human choices, and he vows out of that oneness to fight against any kind of destruction of that magnitude it becomes what he dedicates the rest of his life to. Where's the passivity we were talking about? There's no passivity. In other words, acceptance, acceptance of what shows up allows us to no longer turn an eye to distress. And then this makes us, this pushes us to the realization that our own actions also can contribute to violence in the world. So first we have to learn how to meet our own internal mind states with friendliness and compassion and so on so that we can then work with the reality of what's in our own minds and hearts. You have the capacity for a lot of compassion and you also have the capacity to... uh, extend violence all over the place through your actions of body, speech, and mind. Speech can create happiness and it can also create a lot of suffering. So in working with the obstacles in practice, and again, I hope we're clear that obstacles are not just internal. They're also external. There's no difference. Consciousness settles, Patanjali says, as one radiates friendliness compassion, delight, and equanimity toward all things, whether pleasant or painful, good or bad. Michael, what happens when, say, you're using this in relationship with friends or whatever, and it doesn't necessarily come back to you in that I've been been experimenting with these ideas with my own, in my own relationships and, yeah. and some people no matter how you, you can radicalize acceptance and you're leaving yourself prone to being injured in that you know like if you have someone who shouldn't be in your life and you're trying to use radical acceptance to allow them to be as they are you're, mm-hmm. you're putting yourself in, in danger in a way Communicating what I'm trying to say. And I've asked you this question before, and you've always said to me, you know, if you you should become aware aware of your own breathing. If you're in a relationship that you shouldn't be in, you know, your breath will tell you. But sometimes, if you try to practice this, and I even go to my own breath and I say, okay, I have to Mm -hmm. understand that this person is in context, and (coughs) understand that this person is coming from a certain thing, Mm -hmm. and and I've been getting confused when sometimes I'm riding the line between, you know, is this relationship too much for me? Mm -hmm. Or is it my own? Or do I need to sort of open my heart more? You know, that's tricky ground sometimes. Yeah, it's human ground. And I think we all struggle with that. Um, But it's important to be clear that Radical acceptance does not mean condoning things. It means accepting things so you can see something clearly. What did Gary Snyder say here? He said he's completely accepting what shows up and he was going to dedicate the rest of his life to fighting against it. In other words, sometimes we start to pick up on something and we deny its existence so that we can maybe maintain a relationship. But the relationship doesn't work. It's fraught with tension. Because first there has to be genuine acceptance. 
And accepting something doesn't mean that you're still in relationship in, in the physical world. Sometimes there are certain relationships we have to end because they're harmful. And we end those relationships, but we still accept the person. Another way of talking about this is forgiveness. That to forgive somebody is accepting the past. And sometimes we need that kind of acceptance to move on. Otherwise, the past still haunts us. And what does it mean to really forgive somebody? It means to accept them completely. But if you, if you hear that and you translate that into accepting everyone and just being in relationship with everybody as equal, I think that's somewhat problematic because we still have a feeling for living in a certain way and we want to surround ourselves with people who are inspiring and supportive and so on. Some people who are used to or have grown up in violent situations, they don't know how to get out of them. So they keep repeating the violent situation. Codependent relationships are like this. Codependent relationships continue because people can't accept them. They can't accept how they feel. Sometimes helping someone end a relationship involves helping someone find satya or honesty, being honest about how they feel in the relationship. And that helps them accept the other person. It's too easy when we break up with people sometimes. Have anybody here ever had to break up with someone? Or have you ever had someone break up with you? Yes? No? Okay. (laughs) You just wave. (laughs) It's like when someone breaks up with you and then you turn them into the bad person. Right? And the only way you can deal with the end of the relationship is by making them the bad person. It's called scapegoating, right? But then it's complicated because you're always thinking about them. A, because you have to keep them as bad, which is impossible. Because B, there was also some love there. And then there's this paradox. You love them and you hate them. Right? And they're both there. In any case, the relationship doesn't work. It's not working right now. And there has to be room sometimes in relationship to acknowledge the death of something. That something is over. And no matter how the two people might come back together again, in whatever form that will be, you can't know from here. But how it was has to end. And that's what we mean by acceptance. Accepting that something has come to an end or needs to end. And sometimes that gives birth to a whole new kind of friendship. (coughs) And sometimes it means that two people in the terrestrial world won't speak again. That happens to be their orbit. But in no way should we think of acceptance as condonement or as non-attachment as, or non-attachment as passivity. I think those are superficial ways of looking at the practice, maybe overly philosophical, rather than what it really means to feel something deeply and accept it and then take action that's appropriate. So if I go back, could that mean then maybe walking away from something because you're not ready to, like if you can't accept it, maybe that's what what you're saying, I'm not sure that, what if you can't accept it or accept something that's happening? Um, Not not too much of the relationship thing, but maybe that thing is something who's abusive or something like that in a relationship and you can't accept it. Eventually your work will be to accept it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that means you're living with them. No, right, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. But at some point you will have to find the acceptance in your heart. Whenever you place someone outside of your heart, your whole world gets colored by that. You work to keep someone outside of your heart And all you see is them, everywhere. It's like everything is that color. And whatever it is that colors your perception, 
you have to bring that back into your heart again. And no one said that that's easy. But that's part of what we mean by... I like this image we were working with this morning of rolling things back into the practice. This is what we roll into the practice. Anything you place outside of your heart. Including yourself. Including yourself. Just because sometimes with breakups or friendships ending or whatever, that's, you know, that's, I guess you can blame that person and that's what I'm doing right currently. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm stepping back from it and then it's like, you know, really is this person that good in my life? Or right. is it a good sort of, yeah. uh, you think of, it may, maybe sounds selfish, but it's like, does this person serve me the best way? If they don't, then maybe it's, they go. And, you know, you want to hate that person, but maybe yeah. sort of. And isn't this what Sangha is all about? Surrounding yourself with a community that supports your practice, especially in a culture that does not. For, for, you know, for me personally, you know, um, we spend a lot of time up north, especially in the summertime. And where we stay up north across the road, it's an old church, and part of the church is a very old cemetery. Um, a century old and um, we play a lot in the cemetery there's no one around, it's abandoned basically and um, when I'm in the cemetery I feel I always feel that that's Sangha it's so quiet there and the trees there are so old and the tombstones are so old it gives me so much support in a way I don't know if I can articulate clearly but I always feel that that's my sangha. That's my community. Every time I step into that cemetery, I feel the same way. And yes. I've been doing it for years. And so we have to have places like that, or people around us like that, that support us, dead or alive, in such a way that um, our practice has encouragement and why we practice makes sense. And sometimes we're in certain kinds of relationships where it's detrimental to our practice. And part of our practice will be to clarify those relationships and to bring them into our heart, even if on a terrestrial level they end. And according to Patanjali, regardless of time, place, or circumstance, Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. Compassion is not softy, softy. Sometimes it looks more like a thunderbolt than a Robert Bly book. Sorry, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> what do they call? What do they call the people who go to his workshops and beat drums? Sensitive New Age guys. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to hang out at the health food store to be compassionate. <laughs> Let me read you something. This is a poem by Marge Piercy. It's called To Be of Use pulling out all the literature today. <laughs> the people I love the best jump into work head first without dallying in the shadows and swim off with sure strokes almost out of sight. They seem to become natives of that element, the black sleek heads of seals, bouncing like half-submerged balls. I love people who harness themselves an ox to a heavy cart who pull like water buffalo with massive <coughs> patience, who strain in the mud and the muck to move things forward, who do what has to be done again and again. 
I want to be with people who submerge in the task, who go into the fields to harvest and work in a row and pass the bags along, who stand in the line and haul in their places, who are not parlor generals and field deserters, but move in a common rhythm when the food must come in or the fire be put out. The work of the world is common as mud. Botched, it smears the hands, crumbles to dust. But the thing worth doing well, but the thing worth doing well, done, has a shape that satisfies, clean and evident. Greek amphoras for wine or oil, Hopi vases that held corn, are put in museums, but you know they were made to be used. The pitcher cries for water to carry and a person for work that is real. The pitcher cries for water to be carried and the person for work that is real. In other words, these ideas in this text are not sacred. They're not holy. They're not supposed to be bowed down to and chanted inside temples. They're supposed to be chanted in your work outside of the temple, outside of the floor that's surrounded by these walls. So if you sweep this temple, that your sweeping doesn't leave here. If it doesn't leave here, and you only consider your practice in the temple, then your practice is misguided because there's a world that supports this place and a world that extends out of this place. And so when you start sweeping in here, you sweep the floor, you sweep your mind, you sweep your body, and then you have to take that sweeping out into the world. You sweep culture, you sweep relationships, because you need to do work that feels real. And how do you do work that feels real? Well, sometimes we need some suggestions. And the suggestion is meeting the obstacles that come up in the way we've been talking about and following some of the principles of the yamas. Non-violence, not harming, not stealing, not using energy unwisely, being honest and not being greedy. And then that helps your sweeping. If you sweep as a greedy person, you'll only sweep your little area. If you sweep as an angry person, your sweeping won't be efficient. If you sweep as a person who is trying to harm, you'll hurt somebody with your broom. So just like a pitcher wants water, your mind and body want work that's real. And how do you know what real work is? Well, you don't have to worry about that because other people will tell you. You look at how you function in your community, and if you pay attention, it will be obvious what work you should be doing. Other people will let you know. I don't mean like your parents saying, you really should be a lawyer. <laughs> I mean, you see what, what, work is, what work needs to be done and what's called for, but you can't tell what's called for if your mind is all stirred up and if you haven't done your sweeping. Yeah, that's the point. And I, I think you just said something quite profound a while ago, so I've been thinking about that. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, even if I think of my government work, yeah. I know really 50, 60% of it is bullshit because of the power structures that happen. Right. And I'm sure, and that's supposed to be meaningful work, so let's mm -hmm. go to the corporate world now, let's go to advertising, let's go to management and so on and so forth. Yeah, people have to do this job. Yeah. From a practical perspective. Mm -hmm. So I think what was really helpful about mm -hmm. talking about turning um, these obstacles, my sense was, you know, if you can approach in a very unperfect world, mm -hmm. that the daily job of yours, which may or may not feel real to you at that time, mm -hmm. with this kind of friendliness and compassion and so forth, you can make mm -hmm. kind of instrumentally real, even mm -hmm. if it's absolutely unreal. Sure. I think that's a kindness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And just like we were talking about, 
sometimes there are relationships where we bring that to the relationship and it also shows us how we need to leave that situation too. And they're equally true that sometimes people can be caught up in work that's unreal and they're too terrified to leave. And whenever fear dominates our choices, um, the choices don't get made clearly. So I think I would add to what you're saying without fear, without fear. Sometimes we're in work that isn't real because of fear. And actually I'd say our culture has work that's unreal because of fear too. There is so much work that must be done. Good work. And when you do good work, you feel good. Remember what Freud said. Freud said that the, the common cure for neuroses at bottom is work. There's something to that. I think people throw that out as you know him being a product of his Victorian culture, but I think he's on to something there. There's something about when you get involved in work where you disappear for the greater benefit of other people because it benefits you. You disappear in your work. And when you work like that, your work turns into art because it's highly creative, because you're taking the conditions that you have and you're, you're making art out of it. You know, Christopher Chapel defines karma as creativity is that you take the raw stuff of your life and you work with it. And that action is creativity. It's a nice way of thinking about karma. (coughs) Any other thoughts before the siesta? You hear it all the time, you know, they're just sort of not happy at their jobs or whatever, they're just working because mm-hmm. they have to pay the bills, they have to <coughs> support their family, so yeah. so it's not like they're not doing the right work. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of, it's mobile, I think, if you almost choose sure. that way and not sort of to look at it as, this isn't, I should be doing this and that, you know, but it's sort of mobile, sure. really, because how many people sacrifice their lives? for others as far as taking care of the family. Mm-hmm. This is the way I would sort of look at sure. it. So maybe sure. sort of a different sort of spin on it. Yeah. And also a parigraha is how many people sacrifice their lives with delusional ideas about how much money they need to make. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those World Trade Centers were very tall. And there are things that we all do in our habits of consumption that help create the height of those World Trade Centers. And so part of what we need to wake up to, too, is that there are certain ways that we live that deeply ripple out, that ripple, they extend way out into the web of economic life. And as soon as you start talking about economic injustice, you start talking about ethics, and nobody wants to talk about it. Because it would actually make you change the way that you make choices. And this would create restraint. And then you're in the first limb of yoga. You can't separate ecological and social action from spiritual practice. And you can't define spiritual practice independent of psychological transformation. The yamas force a kind of restraint that force you to change how you live in your mind. And how you live in your mind then changes how you consume in the culture. 
So social action, spiritual practice, and psychological change can't ever be separated. They're all the same process. I think one of the difficult things about talking about ethics in today's context is that you really do open up a can of worms because who then gets the final say on what is ethical? And it seems like there are certain people who are very concerned with ethics. Um, and you, know, you, you said it earlier this morning, like the, the um, application of their ethics would really curtail my rights in, in quite a way, mm-hmm. uh, very severely. Um, you know, my right to choose in terms of abortion, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you approach this? How, it, it seems that we cannot talk about ethics unless there's a prior agreement to respect dialogue above everything else. Mm-hmm. That that has to continue because you know our legal system is also not not based on that. We have precedents, which I think in some ways is extremely silly. Yes. You know, you make up your one decision, and then every decision after that has to be somehow similar to that. The yamas are not rules. Mm-hmm. They're going to be broken, and they're going to be stretched and pushed around. That's their purpose. Their only purpose is to have some kind of framework that make you meditate on the effects of your actions. That's the purpose of the yamas. But set that up in the context of eight limbs, and suddenly samadhi, which is the realization of inherent affinity with all things. If we could define enlightenment, we would define enlightenment as intimacy. Because the realization of intimacy is enlightenment. Exactly the same thing. So samadhi is the recognition of interdependence and interpermeation of all things in the web of life. If I realize that you and I are not separate, why would I try and steal from you? How could I steal something from you? If I recognize that you and I are one, why would I want to harm you? Why would I want to be dishonest? I wouldn't. I only want to be that if I'm motivated by my own self-centeredness. But self-centeredness comes apart in the practice of samadhi. The point here is that each limb loops into every other limb, so it becomes circular, like, or it becomes a web, rather than a linear ladder. If you place samadhi as the eighth limb at the top of a ladder, you have this idea of practice as extending out of ethics, but never returning back to ethics. So you have your meditative experience of samadhi, and then you cling to that. And you're in your little town in India, and you have your samadhi experience, and then you come to Toronto, and we don't treat women the same way. So if you don't let how we treat women affect your samadhi experience, then who cares about your samadhi experience? You have to live in this culture. So your samadhi experience is contextual. And that's why if you think of enlightenment as intimacy or affinity, then you see that enlightenment is the constant back and forth. It's always, there's always openness to dialogue because there's no clinging. So you can't separate the yamas from the other limbs or you start to turn them into commandments. And then somebody can have uh, right ethics and wrong ethics. They're just guidelines. And it's important to understand guidelines because they're not going to tell you how to do your life. Nobody can do that. But they can help you motivate the kind of actions you take so that your intentions are deeply rooted in non-harming. I still don't see though how we would bring that into dialogue with someone who practices a form of Christianity, which mm-hmm. basically argues that um, they are <coughs> because, because the commandments are a contextual, 
that they cannot be touched, they cannot be altered, or if they were. I, there's meaning, I don't understand how... Then you, you turn your whole body into um, a being available for dialogue. And that's what you do. In the same way that you may be in relationship with people who will always, in your lifetime anyways, act out the same violent habits. And so you live your life in such a way that you don't repeat the same thing that you see and want to act against. So that your body becomes a um, filter so that you don't put any more fear into the culture. You don't put more anger into the culture. You don't put more greed into the culture. And then you're living with the yamas as principles, but not as rules or commandments. Sometimes that's totally dangerous, though. It's only dangerous if you think the yamas have to be rules. Or laws. But for, uh, for some people like myself, you yeah. can sort of <coughs> give yourself that leeway. You know, if, if you're in community, other people won't give you the leeway. Mm-hmm. They'll tell you you're being a blockhead. <laughs> and then if you're practicing, you'll meditate on the effect of your actions. And you'll see that when you're being a blockhead, it affects a lot of other people. <laughs> And then hopefully you'll stop being a blockhead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you won't have any friends left. Yeah. Are we clear about this section? We're going to keep going with this, but not today. Any other questions or comments? Just like you know, feeling something for someone, um, using a lot of empathy can start to become compassion. But sometimes it's not; it can't be sustained. It has to be integrated. Too much empathy. I always think of it as like compassion in drag. <laughs> that it's it's kind of it seems like compassion, but it's just a costume. So, intimacy is not a costume. You either feel it or you don't feel it. And samadhi is a series of techniques to help push you into a feeling of intimacy by renouncing the only thing that keeps you out of intimacy, which is the fear of letting go of your stories about me. And then momentarily, when you're not caught up in self-reference, you feel an affinity for things. Samadhi is a beautiful word. It means integration. What's integrated? It's the. It's not. It, it's exactly the same word as yoga, isn't it? It's not that you're integrating something. It's something has lifted so you can feel and see intimacy. That's why I like more than enlightenment the, the terminology of waking up. Waking up. This idea of lifting a veil and waking up. And this, because it's always process. Waking up more and more out of the dream of separateness. And what do you wake up to? You wake up to affinity. And what do you wake up from? Being enclosed by self-constructs. 
It's like internalized oppression that you're doing to yourself. Amazing. I wish Darwin were here. It would be very interesting to consider this in terms of evolution. Or maybe that would start a religious war in our yoga community. Okay. Let's put our texts aside.